Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features composer Miguel Del Aguila. We hope you enjoy. Hello, wonderful gentlefolk, and welcome back to the Soundweavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and my brilliant and wonderful co-host and co-pilot for the day is the incredible Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. How are you, my dear? I am doing well, Rosie. Thank you. How are you? Uh, Not too shabby. The weather is just delightful over here. Typical Brit. I have to talk about the weather at some point. So our brilliant and wonderful guest that we have today is the wonderful three-time Grammy-nominated American composer, Miguel de la Aguila. Miguel has had his music performed throughout the world with a number of brilliant and wonderful ensembles. In fact, I've performed some of his music and I know Adam has as well. So this is just a testament to how wonderful all of his music is. And he has been described as an outstanding composer. And the music of Miguel de la Gila leaves no one indifferent. So that's from Music of Russia. And also irresistible rhythms, powerfully propelled by frantic tempos, pleasantly demented piece and disarmingly genial from the san francisco sentinel so without further ado we should talk to our wonderful guest hi miguel thank you so much for joining us today hi rosanna hi adam it's uh, great to be here after this uh, presentation um i have nothing else to say i guess <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to begin with chatting about how you began your musical life. And actually, how did you first get into composition? I wish I knew that. I wish I knew that. (laughs) You know, since I was a little kid, I remember what my parents said is that I usually uh, liked toys that make some kind of noise and threw away everything else that didn't make noise. Uh, Then as I got older, uh, the first thing I remember from all my toys was a little xylophone, xylophones, mm-hmm. you know, with metal bars, which, and I remember my fascination with that, the noise, uh, the sound it made. Uh, so, of course, then I got more toys, and I, my parents said I would sometimes arrange in the patio of my house when I was playing um, all the toys in the position of an orchestra, and then I would bring pots and pans from the kitchen. And then I would be actually there standing in front of them 
singing and conducting them, all these toys. And sometimes I would recruit kids from the neighborhood. And of course, everything was awful what sounded, but in my mind, that was, um, I guess I was making music without knowing. Um, I started playing different instruments um, against my parents' um, advice because they, they always thought you're going to starve if you're a musician, you need to do something serious. I, I always saw myself as a composer and I don't know why. Even hmm. so I started to learn piano. Uh, my dad played some violin and then they made me learn clarinet. I wanted to learn piano because I wanted to write. I knew um, Chopin and Liszt and all these composers play piano. So I thought that was, that's what I need to do. So there were, it was a very blurred line for me when I was, since I was a kid. Composing and performing, it was pretty much the same thing to me. So sometimes I remember my, at the beginning, my teachers would get very upset because whatever music I was playing, some Beethoven sonatina or something, I, in the middle of it, I would just insert bars and delete bars. And mm. um, I always thought I could improve it. And I felt no remorse making changes because I thought that was my job, right? And so I don't know, to, to you know, answer your question, uh, I really don't know. I don't think I ever became a um, composer or a musician. I think I sort of uh, was born with the need to be surrounded by music around me, you know, like a soundtrack. I was born with a soundtrack need. And I think it's just my head, my head makes it, you know. And later on, of course, things change. You go to school, you learn, and music becomes also your job. Um, but mm -hmm. that's another long story. <laughs> no, I think the thing that I love about that is that, I mean, it shows how central play is to music making and just learning in general. And I think it's, it's fascinating, actually, because your start as having interest in Percussion and percussive elements uh, kind of brings me to the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, which was um, just your connection between your Uruguayan roots and um, the way that you couple drama with uh, driving rhythms uh, is the way that it's described. Um, so I wonder, I mean, with chamber music, which is a genre that tends to be dominated by small and purely instrumental ensembles, how do you weave these kind of um, rhythmic and dramatic elements? I think rhythmic is dramatic. Uh, mm. There is the you know 19th century European uh, way of hearing music in which drama has to come from diminished seventh chords and melodies in the violins with big leaps, right? Um, I think rhythm is very dramatic. It's the most primitive of all the dramatic elements of music. Uh, my training in Uruguay was very classical. My teachers, you know, were in their 80s when I was a little kid. Uh, they knew, they had known personally Saint-Saëns and Debussy. And uh, so I was very lucky to have that, gotten that experience firsthand from them. And I didn't really uh, appreciate our folklore, um, which happens to a lot of people who are in Latin America. 
you know, their eyes are turned to Europe in classical music or they don't realize what they have. So military government came, I had to leave Uruguay. I was 20 when I left and I lived here for a while. I lived 10 years in Vienna and in Austria where I studied too. And I think it was there where as a musician, I started really becoming who I am. And I became, of course, when you're alone in one country and you can't go back to where you were born, I couldn't go back. It was dangerous and I couldn't renew my passport to go there. So you start carrying your music like a suitcase. It's, it's what mm-hmm. makes you who you are. So I, all the music I grew up with in Uruguay sort of became more present um, and it became more, it found a way into my own language, more and more and more of it uh, in a more overt way, right? Not transcribed to European taste, but more the essence of it. I, I really went for the essence of it. And the only problem maybe is a lot of it was had a nostalgic flavor now, mood, because I was so far away and I couldn't go back. And I, I think to this day that's, that remained, that quality. When I, when I hear a guitar, to me, it's just memories, right? When I hear um, some rhythm, some melodic element, uh, there is always that nostalgia of the place where I grew up that I couldn't go back. That, that's actually a beautiful word in Welsh uh, that I think kind of sums uh, sums this up. It's a Welsh word which is haraeth, which is mean to literally yearn for your home country um, where, and where you're from, especially if it has changed or you can't go back to it. So I think that's a appropriate word to to bring up at this point. So moving on to some of your works, you have arranged and transcribed some of your works such as Semerikita or Submerged for various chamber, chamber ensembles throughout your career. What do you feel is gained and lost in transcribing a work for different timbres and different ensembles? Nothing is lost. Woohoo, that's good. Nothing is lost. <laughs> on the contrary, it's just... Uh, um, I don't know, maybe Rosanna, you played with dolls when you were a little girl and you dressed them in different clothes and your doll looked different and better or worse. But I don't want to call it transcribing because that uh, assumes that there is an original. There is never an original mm-hmm. in my head when I'm composing. I'm writing a piece for, like, for example, uh, Malambo, the, the one, my, my latest piece for Bassoon. I wrote three versions at the same time. And actually in my head, there are passages where I didn't hear any of the three versions I was writing. So sometimes I'm writing a piece for piano and in my head, every passage rings by uh, different, performed by a different ensemble. So Mm -hmm. when I'm asked to write or submerge, for example, it's a trio for harp, viola, flute originally. And you see, I have a hard time remembering what was it. <laughs> but there are so many versions. And to me, every new version gives me a chance to color. It's like a coloring book, right? To color the music in a different mood, to use different, you know, what each instrument's voice has to offer. And the voice of each instrument really changes a piece. 
So all of a sudden you substitute a cello for a bassoon and you got a totally new different piece and you have to adapt the message and the sound of your piece to that new instrument or else it's a forced thing and it doesn't work, right? So I, I do love writing different versions and I don't consider them arrangements ever, never. It, it's kind of similar to what a lot of French composers did. So Debussy, Ravel, I, all of the French harp composers, for, so Tournier, uh, they would write pieces for solo harp, for example, and then there would be a version for harp and string quartet, and there would be a version for string quartet and piano. And it was all the same piece, but just sort of reconfigured in different ways. And I think, that, A, it's a really good business strategy, but also it means that more ensembles can yes. play your music, which is obviously the whole point. When music has good bones, you can arrange it for 120 tubas and a harpsichord, and it works. Think of it. It just works. Look at Bach's music. You can arrange Bach for almost anything, and it works because it has good bones. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes when I see composers worrying too much about the minutiae, of orchestration, you know, how do I get this multiphonic on a bassoon of a G and this and that? And how do I get from, I don't know, a viola, a scratch sound, just uh, moving the bow, you know, transvert and uh, perpendicular to the stuff? I think, okay, as long as you consider that an effect, that its only purpose is to color the the music it's color color is not the painting right color is an added is like the icing of a cake so if your cake is good you can do you can eat it in any way you want right including with no icing so that's why i think it's um, very good that composers do many versions because it really makes you see the bones of your music that's interesting yeah i love that i love it too because it's I, I mean in a lot of ways it, it suggests that music can just be recast and and understood from different perspectives and i think that that's also a really powerful uh way to view that on a, a slightly different tangent uh your music has been recorded on at least 51 albums possibly more and um you know the thing that I was thinking about is that we've spoken with a lot of our guests uh, who perform in ensembles about the recording process, but we haven't really spoken yet with composers um, who haven't performed on their own albums. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what the process of recording looks like for you um, as a composer who might not actually be participating in the, the performance. Oh gosh, that's a complex question. You know, I did the last recording where I performed myself. I did this recording with piano and clarinet. It's called Silence. And I, I, I think when the performer knows their part very well, uh, recording, it's really fun. Mm -hmm. um, there is more, the most difficult part of recording is probably to keep the whole of the music in your head. Uh, mm -hmm. to keep to know exactly where you are within the entire piece, also emotionally, as you're recording over and over five bars that are too difficult. And very often, uh, or sometimes I see recordings that are perfect, 
but somehow they lack emotional direction, right? Because mm -hmm. the composers go for, uh, the performers, they go for playing every passage perfectly um, and they forget emotionally where they are. You know, there are problems performing my music, which I think have to do with the fashion of the day and the kind of um, musicians conservatories train. Um, and I, very often I encounter pretty much the same problems, a lack of uh, rhythmic um, precision on like pianists, a tendency to put the pedal down when you want to blur everything, right? And I, it drives me crazy. But at the same time, there is, for example, a part in your music. You know, my music tends to get out of control, right? And, and I, I don't know why. I do like things getting out of control. So there is a part where you want chaos. There is a part when you want the bassoon to, to get this ugly buzzing sound or the viola or the violins to scratch. You, that's part of the emotional perception of music, right? Not everything can be clean and perfect. So what happens sometimes in recordings is musicians record over and over. And when they get to those passages, everything has to be clean. So those are the, the extremes that I see sometimes are lacking in recorded music. When you aim for a perfect rendition of the notes on the paper which is really the worst thing you could do. Looking at your incredible biography, I noted that you're currently working on commissions for ensembles such as Guetetto Latinoamericano, uh, the Eroca Trio, the Calliope Reeds, and 5x5, Five Five, who are an ensemble that uh, I know particularly well. Um, and there, I know there is a music video going with that particular commission as well. Uh, could you talk a little about how COVID conditions have altered your collaborations with these ensembles in the past year? Well, I tell you sincerely, like all of us, it helped me learn new things. Right, new media, new, uh, but it took a lot of fun of the music. Uh, contrary to performers, right? You guys go in concerts, you are always uh, seeing your friends, make music together. We composers are pretty isolated, so we work alone. And there comes a pandemic, and now we can't even go to concerts to hear our music. Of course, it's a great thing that we have the technology that allow all these ensembles to keep making music, to keep performing. I remember the, the, my clarinet quartet. Every musician was in a different country and they recorded it, right? It's amazing that we can do that and we should be very thankful. But I think is there is one thing the pandemic proved is that human beings cannot exist without live music. Not only musicians need it, but the audience needs it. There is, there is no replacement for it. So to answer your question, I've, I've written music, it's being performed. I've been a part of it through, you know, exchanging files and emails. And um, I think for a lot of it, what's missing is that emotional sort of deep element of playing music and just looking at the person playing next to you and that communication that ha happens when everybody's playing music together and 
it's hard to explain. It's that's the magic of music that you can't explain what it is. And I think um, that's very hard to capture on video or when musicians are not playing together. And there's certainly an element of audience participation, yeah. for want of a better word, that is lost. That it, It's nice hearing a chuckle from the audience if you're introducing your piece and you say something quippy, or it's like even just, I know everyone complains about this, but coughing between movements, like it at least brings some reality yeah. to performance rather than performing for a video. Well, moving in a slightly different direction. It seems as though composers often pursue university teaching as a main focus of their career, um, but you've chosen to function more in a kind of freelance role uh, in presenting regular master classes and short-term residencies instead. Um, so I was wondering if you could um, talk to us a little bit about the ways in which you feel that this approach has benefited your career. I still don't know if it is, if it was. <laughs> <laughs> I. Um... I think it was an accident for me. You know, I graduated from San Francisco Conservatory and then I went to Vienna for what I thought was going to be, you know, my PhD. Uh, in the meantime, I, I told you since the beginning, I always struggled between being a performer, a pianist or a composer. So my degree in San Francisco was as a pianist. And mm -hmm. I go to Vienna and I thought, I'm sick of playing piano. I'm really want to do my music. Um, I went to Vienna for a whole year. I didn't play piano at all. And I wrote music. So my I continued the studies there as a composer. The degrees, uh, the, the like a PhD for European universities is different than the American one. So yeah. well, I never got the PhD there, but I did more studies than the one that I would have done here. The pro mm -hmm. Then I came back to America and you need to validate your studies. You know, it's not accepted unless you graduate from a, an American university or, or uh, validate all your studies abroad. I love teaching. I really love teaching composition. To me, it's like being a psychologist because you need to get into the head of your students because creating is a very intimate process. Oh, yeah. But as mm. much as I love teaching, I detest the politics of academia and administration, which I think is it goes totally against what art should be. Uh, Absolutely. Administration usually has no idea what we artists need to teach music and to, you know, it's they have no idea. Only we know that. So I always, you know, occasionally I taught as an adjunct in some universities and colleges and, you know, I do guest lecturing often. And, um, but I soon realized that I enjoyed just the freedom, the making music. And I enjoyed the teaching of students who you could push, who were very motivated, who have something to say. Students that I could tell them, your piece sucks. And I wouldn't have the dean come to me, you know, come to me the next day and get me in trouble because the student went there to complain that they didn't get a little start stuck to their, you know, church. I think that answers my question why I chose to uh, not teach. And while there is a lot of great musicians who are teaching in universities, I don't think many of them are 100% happy with uh, the 
the way academia is organized. And, you know, of course, conservatories give you more freedom. Uh, but usually universities, and especially for composition in academia, who are just copying year after year Palestrina style and Bach style. And, and then, you know, when I see these students back, they said, you know, I haven't written any more music since I uh, stopped studying with you because where I'm now, I have to keep writing these historic imitation of music, but it seems that nobody cares that I write my own music. So it's a different world. And I think I went way too far on this, but <laughs> I, I also, I remember once uh, this painter friend of mine, she was kind of complaining about how they mistreat artists in China. The way she said it, she said, you know, in China, the poor students, the art students, yeah, school is free, but they are forced to paint like 20 paint commercial paintings a day to pay for their yeah. studies. And I thought, of course, you can't do it forever. But in our universities, for example, you should make composers write a lot of music, a mm. lot, even for commercial, because that's how you learn. You cannot mm -hmm. teach them Palestrina or Bach and not let them do their thing. So we should learn from that. You're a composer, go, you have to write five works per month, really for all your friends, for everybody. And even commercially pay for your scholarship by writing music. And you learn very quickly. You know, the best teacher of composition is at the end of the concert, the indifferent audience the audience that doesn't applaud, applaud or uh, that's your best teacher because mm. that teaches you the responsibility of writing music. And it teaches you that you cannot mistreat the performer, you cannot mistreat the audience because they don't pay for your music anymore. That's a, a lot of the practical aspects of music that disappeared in the 19th century when composers decided to be in their own ivory tower and start writing crazy music that really they just scared away everybody. The past year, we've seen a lot of the classical music world grappling with what it means to dismantle uh, systems of oppression that have been prevalent in the industry for a long time. Um, so I wanted to ask you what practices and tools and resources would you suggest that small ensemble performers and composers and improvisers implement uh, so that we can sustain long range change? Oh gosh, you know, for, I sincerely think that classical music is so behind the rest of the world when it comes to inclusiveness and acceptance. We're still dealing with not playing too many uh, composers from the 18th century. Think, think how crazy that is. We're still dealing with colonialism, you know, cultural European colonialism. Uh, mm -hmm. We've been an independent country since what, 17 something? So think how classical music is behind in terms of including other music. And I think it's, um, we all have the responsibility to, um, evolve. And, you know, like in terms of opening, it's, 
I don't believe when somebody puts on their website some organization, you know, oh, we're all open to this, to that. Uh, talk is very cheap. And now there is a lot of cheap talk. Uh, but I think it all begins like when you're choosing your repertoire, for example, do, uh, um, do your, your search, do your work, try to find music from so many composers who write great music, right? And play it. Don't stick to playing the same thing over and over. Uh, if you're a conductor, um, it's, very often I see, you know, Hispanic conductors that they stick to Mahler symphonies. As soon as they make, you know, get an orchestra, they just Beethoven fifth and Mahler and, um, and you feel this is really a betrayal because there is so much music written by all kinds of composers. You, you don't even need to find out where they are from uh, if they're Hispanic, if they're Black, whatever, it doesn't matter. You just go research music and play what you think should be played. And that is not happening, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, then we have, obviously, cultural organizations that are run by the same people, right? And funding that is run always by the same people. And that's typical classical music world. and. I find, you know, that's pretty sad. I, I wish actually those organizations would just have buy candy with their money and distribute it. Some, <laughs> it will be more helpful, you know, than keep, keep funding the same thing over and over. Um, and then there is uh, um, an, uh, uh, classical music needs in America, we're talking, right? To, decide what they will consider American classical music and make up their minds. Uh, my music, I am American. I've been American for longer than you guys are alive. I've been alive, right? So this is my home. And because my music sounds Latin for many people, I'm not uh, American. It's not American music. So yeah. that sounds so unfair. We'll see. Okay, we're very open now. Let, let's uh, include everybody. So let's do a Latin music festival and we'll include Miguel's music. Uh, mm. To me, that's a terrible thing uh, because mm. you don't have to do a German music festival to put Beethoven there, right? No, so, no, absolutely um, not. And I know it sounds crazy, but uh, think of it. So what if we put only Austrian music festivals and we put Mozart and Bruckner and besides that, you never play these people. So why then has to be, for example, uh, Hispanic composers born or who live their entire lives as Americans um, have to be performed in these little themes of, you know, like an evening in Havana or who knows. Um, so I find that very sad. And I, I find that classical music is really an international art, because music is an international language. So if you start becoming too local, localist, and if there is a group that starts saying, you know, this is American music, or this is what we need to do, then um, nothing good will come out of it. Nothing good.
And the policies of some orchestras, for example, that they qualify for all these big grants now that include outreach and all that uh, by buying some cheap violins and taking them to the poor kids and showing them how the violins work. I find that, of course, that is helpful in many ways, but at the same time, these musicians who make a lot of money, some of them, compared to the kids, they go visit and teach them Beethoven. At the same time, you feel these orchestras think that they can't just give music, give European music to other people. And they don't accept that these other people have music to give to them, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, culture is never a one-sided thing. Culture is mm -hmm. never a, I am educated and more have more money than you. So this is my culture and I come to give it to you. It's actually the opposite. Think of mm -hmm. the history of music. Think of where it came from. It's never, it never came from the establishment, from the protected the prevailing culture. It just came from different places. And I think that is probably classical music's biggest problem is that there is a lot of the money, a lot of the institutions have this mentality that they or we are part of it, right? That we are superior and we bring culture to the ghettos. And we mm. forget that, yeah. you know, from the ghettos came the music. And then it's, it's totally backwards. And it's very sad. And I, I hope we'll grow out of this. And I, I do have hope. And I think the greatest thing that happened these years with all this social change is that it forced many of us to rethink and consider different possibilities for classical music. I think they were already happening in chamber music. Chamber, I love the chamber music world because it's usually more realistic for the fact, due to the fact that if you are a trio, you need to program music that reaches more people or else you don't get paid. It's, it kept evolving. I think orchestras didn't evolve in that sense because mm -hmm. they had the safety of their trust funds, of their grants, of the, the rich people of the community. I'm, and I think that's going to change. It's a good thing. Change is always good. And um, it makes a lot of people unhappy. You can never make change without making people unhappy. But what's the other choice, you know, you, never to grow, never to change, and then that's terrible. I, I think that is uh, talking about sort of outreach and taking the violins into the inner cities. I mean, this is a wonderful thing to do. I mean, there's reasons why Elsa Stemma programs are so wonderful and so lauded. But um, in one of our previous interviews, we were speaking with Fifth House Ensemble, and one of the things they made a really, really <clears throat> big point of saying is, if you take out some of the letters of outreach, it's ouch. <laughs> the whole idea is community engagement. It's not going in and saying, look how fancy and shiny I am. I play the violin. It's going, everyone can create art. Let's sort of find ways and help unlock things for each other. And that that is how we're going to grow as a society and yeah. how things hopefully will change. 
gonna rein it back in and uh, talk a bit more about entrepreneurship and life skills. So one thing that I have noticed is that you are very, very active in promoting your music on social media. Now, I, for musicians listening, we all know that composers often live under rocks, but you are really, really good at promoting everything you're, that you're doing. Um, can you talk a bit about how you sustain such a strong communication with your fan base? I am. I didn't know that. you're really good you always post about things and you're also really good about promoting the ensembles that are playing your music as well which i I mean we certainly appreciate as performers i I think that's a wonderful thing you know we don't know composers live really in isolation in many ways so we don't know what others do and that's sometimes why we are the most taken advantage of uh musicians in the music world because we don't stick together right so going back to i don't know what other composers do so i didn't know i was very active in uh, or um, i do believe in supporting the ensembles that play my music because you know they, they they bring your music to life my music is just dots on a piece of paper if it's not performed and i'm always very excited when a new ensemble does my music. Um, I do share very often the news. I, I try to keep up with who's playing my music where, which is very hard because I don't have a good memory and I forget. Um, but I try to keep up with that. And I try to invite my friends and so to their concerts. Um, I think in the, in the past, compo- many also reacting to that new definition of the composer role as the crazy person in the ivory tower uh, <laughs> or in the Frankenstein lab. Uh, I, I've never been that. You know, when I was starting my career in Vienna, I actually made money accompanying as a pianist, music that nobody else wanted to play because it was bad music and crazy music. I thought, okay, I have plenty of white out to erase all the wrong notes. So, and I, I need the money. So I played all this music. And so very early on, I realized that um, good musicians, good composers are very respectful of the ensembles and they value them who play your music and of the audience who tolerates it or enjoys it. So I always felt very responsible to my performers and to the audience. So I think in that sense, I'm not detached from that performance part. Um, when, I, when there is a, a, a new piece, for example, a new performance of a new piece, some composers don't want to make that recording available because they keep waiting until the CD comes out, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a good business mood, uh, a move, because you will sell more CDs. Um, I believe the way the industry is going, you know, we musicians will have to find another way of making money because CDs are not, no longer, nobody has a CD player anymore. Listen, no, the, no. <laughs> the streaming it has become the way you sell your music, but this, the streaming world now is filled with little agreements between powerful platforms and it's become really a little mafia thing 
for us composers, you know, when, when you get to be my age, you think, oh my gosh, a new media. Now we have to start renegotiating everything. We renegotiate our rights with every single new media that appears. You know, when the cassettes came, all of a sudden, everybody was copying our music, paying no money for it. So mm. we, with BMI, ASCAP, and all that, had to negotiate with cassette manufacturers, right? Then came the, the, um, the CDs, right? And the CD, I forgot already about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, you had to renegotiate every day, or again, all the right. Then came the downloads. The downloads were a big mm -hmm. uh, thing for uh, musicians because all of a sudden people could download your music and trade it and nobody would pay you a cent. Then there we finished negotiating that and now comes the streaming. And the streaming is totally out of control. And I hate to see many young composers who are just giving their rights away to streaming platforms who claim to be publishers also. Uh, so um, going back to your question, I realized that for my music, it was important to put whoever performs my music and wants to put it up on YouTube or so um, to do it. I, uh, I make no money from it, right? Uh, but I think it's important for the ensemble and it's important for me also as a composer. So I, I'm not greedy in that sense. I, I don't ask for you know, extra payment for that. Um, and I think that has probably given a lot of people, like you say, the impression that I'm very active uh, and I'm just open uh, to whoever wants to put you know, my recordings up there. And I, I think it's, at the end, it benefits everybody because also more performers see your music and they want to play. So without further ado, I think we've come to the end of our questions and the end of this delightful and enlightening chat with the incredible and wonderful Miguel Del Aguila. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so enlightening and um, obviously as always, with every episode, we will put all of your links and social medias on all of those wonderful things down in the show notes. Wonderful, wonderful audience. Please do check out Miguel's music. It really is so much fun to play and to listen to, uh, which I think is a testament to being an incredible artist all around. Thank you, guys. And whoever has comments or questions, feel free to just send me a message and I'll be happy to continue this chat. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. 
We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Miguel Del Aguila. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.